0: You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Bridget Quinn is in the Grotto Pod and remains an author. And this is like a reunion of sorts. We haven't been here in so long. You've been holed up in your rustic cabin.
1: Uh, Probably better not to tell people where it is. Should
0: I bongo that out? Yeah. Okay, I'll bongo that. Okay, thanks. But consider it bongoed.
1: Okay, because I I worry about bald head killers. Oh, sorry. (laughs)
0: Excuse me. Uh, your rustic, undisclosed location. Yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. Uh,
0: Where you... I wrote, Wrote, not wrote, kidding. and wrote.
1: 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day for two weeks. That is insane. I sat at desk.
0: And Shabon-like.
1: Yes, it was insane. It was also super satisfying and apparently the only way I can hold the thought.
0: (laughs) Because now you're back and you're finding it hard.
1: I have not written one day since I got back.
0: I was gone as well, but I did not write at all while I was gone, which I should have. You had
1: fun with other people.
0: I did have I gathered information. That's good. And now I'm I'm wondering, well, this is kind of an off-camera discussion, but what to do with that information? Yeah. How, what? This is always the way. Probably nothing. Today, our guest is Dawn Raphael, and we'll find out when she gets here if we're pronouncing her name correctly. She is the author of The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney. We will also find out if we're pronouncing his name correctly when she gets here.
1: I wonder if she knows.
0: Oh, I'm sure she does. Because it's will.
1: historical.
0: She knows everything about him.
1: I know, but how do you know that? Well, she
0: talked to people, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Who knew him? Who knew him. Which is crazy. And I know I'm being very elliptical now, but the guy's story is amazing. And I have to just, I know I always say, like, oh, such a good book, Mm -hmm. because I do feel that way. But this one really got me by the neck.
0: It's a biography of a turn of the century, yeah, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century guy who um, was instrumental in... Making common the use of an incubator for prematurely born babies.
1: Let me just tell you what the subtitle is: How a mysterious European showman saved thousands of American babies. Yeah, and showman,
0: showman didn't do not it. Not a doctor, right? We're going to find yeah. out. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to give away too I much. I know me either,
1: but it's so great. Also, my kid was a preemie. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that. And almost died. Huh? I did not know. Oh, yeah. that's why when we were texting, you said, "Oh, because a preemie." <laughs> like, no.
1: All right, because I write history.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a historical biography, and, which is a big departure for Dawn. I know. She's done so much. She has. She has written... Uh, how two would,
1: short story collections. Two short story
0: collections, a novel, a memoir. And now a biography. Helped launch O the Magazine. Whoa, dude. Uh, that is crazy. Taught in the MFA program at Columbia University. How do you do
1: all this and write? I don't understand. is it mean, as hard
0: to get a job at Columbia as it is to be a student at Columbia
1: I would imagine it's harder. Because
0: they accept 8% of students who apply.
1: Really? But maybe not to the MFA program. Mm,
0: perhaps. Maybe even less. I have no maybe. idea. I don't know. We we'll ask no, I can't do it. Get in. Uh, she is also a yoga instructor.
1: That's how she's able to do all this, I'm and guessing. And teach the
0: embodied creative writing, which I looked up and is probably not for me. Uh, <laughs> because
1: of the embodied part? And the tea. Oh, yeah. I just had some green tea. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. it Was it included in the purchase price? It was. Oh, Nice. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk to Don about a number of things, not the least of which uh, is something that that was the sound of me throwing I've my notes on the that. floor, discarding my notes. Uh, not the least of which is something that fascinates me, which is the process by which someone gets an idea and
1: Sorry, my agent's calling.
0: <laughs> oh, really? Wow, that's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> I hope it's good news, don't you? Yeah, I okay, do. Okay, back to Don.
0: <laughs> back to Don. How one – do you want to get that? Is that? Should uh, I pause and let you get – No, to, but let's finish the intro. You can call her then. after, yeah. <laughs> Bridget got all squirrely there for I'm, a second. I
1: get like, I excited. It's like, a boy, called me.
0: Oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's my agent. Um, how one goes through the process of deciding an idea is interesting enough to pursue and yeah. then pretty much ditching all the processes by which she has worked in the past. Yeah. And following this, I thought one thing that was really interesting about this book to me that I liked a lot, and I'm going to stop using the word interesting because it's trite and overused, was how she would alternate chapters about the doctor's life with chapters of her pursuit of learning
1: about the doctor's life. That's part of – that's, like, my favorite part, practically. Mine, too. I know. It's so interesting. And I like that kind of braided story. I also mm-hmm. always love that kind of detective Yeah, me, too. Thing.
0: Because when – you know, I had the question from the get-go, like, how in the world – you know, because it starts with a scene from 1888 Yeah, that has very specific details. And I say, I think, how is she getting these details?
1: It's so cool. It's so cool. It's so inspiring to me as a person who writes about history. And actually, um, parts of the book take place at one of the World's Fairs. Yes. And I've just been doing research on two other World's Fairs. Not the same ones? Nope. Uh, one also in Chicago, but an earlier one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so have been all kind of like keyed up about World's Fairs and so how cool they so are World's and this crazy. Zone. Because the thing about the World's Fairs is it's wild the different people who end up in the same place. Yeah. Like for example, um, I was doing this research about uh, the nineteen oh four World's Fair in St. Louis, <laughs> or is it Saint Louis? Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It depends if
0: you're meeting someone there or place. not. If you're meeting them, then it's St. Louis.
1: Okay. At any rate, um, about this Montana basketball team.
0: Mm.
1: And who was at the World's Fair? Geronimo was there. And so was, like, Annie Oakley. Wow. And so was Helen Keller.
0: That's like finding and out. And so
1: was, like, just, it was just wild.
0: That's like finding out that Bat Masterson was a sports writer in New York in 1912.
1: There you go. He right? Was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, this one's really served up for you because it's historic mm-hmm. It's yeah. a biography, which I love is kind of your, your shtick.
1: It is my shtick. And I really, really like, loved it. And I thought she um, I thought she handled both parts of the narrative in just this really sure-handed way, where as a reader you just feel in total, yeah. like, ah, I know this is going somewhere good.
0: Well, and she put herself in it, Yeah, which is an interesting thing to try to – there I go again, interesting – which is a, is a difficult thing to finesse. It's a challenge. And I think she does a good job. And I think she's here.
1: Maybe the so doorbell just rang. Let's get. Let's just uh, let's out of this intro the mouth. and just go get her. Okay.
0: Don, welcome to uh, the Grotto Pod, and I'm sorry to have mispronounced your name
2: earlier. Well, thank you. <laughs> Everyone does.
0: It is Don Raffle. It is. As if we are the
1: big winners, and what we have, we really in are.
2: Oh, that's good.
1: (laughs) I'm telling you, I could not put down your book. And that doesn't always happen. You know, like when I'm feeling all the pull of life in our very distractible society, it's so fun to get into a book that just sucks you in.
2: Oh, thank
0: you. It's definitely definitely a um, couple long sessions type of book. And I think some of that, maybe a lot of that, is due – uh, in part to how, as, as a writer of fiction, normally, how did you learn cliffhangers?
2: Oh, the whole thing was just torture. Can I just say? That? <laughs> yes, please <laughs> tell us all this about is what it. We want to know. Yeah, so there were four drafts of this book, and the first one, I really was trying to, you know, just be um, very strictly factual, and I mean, everything is strictly factual. There's 600 end notes in this book, but the first draft my agent politely asked me what the hell happened to my voice because it was completely gone. Um, so I had to structure and restructure it and try to um, stick to the facts but inflect the language and work with the composition to also try to give it a narrative arc that didn't just sound like then this happened and then mm-hmm. this happened mm-hmm. and then this All happened.
1: Always the track with nonfiction. Did the yeah.
0: first draft include the chapters about you pursuing the book?
2: No. I love those. And that has met with mixed reactions. People either love it or hate it. Oh, really? Yeah, some people have felt like, you know, she could have just put that in a little front note. Um, But, no, it wasn't in the first um, drafts. And I think also I did really want to make it clear that I am not a scholar or an academic or a neonatologist, writing this from that perspective. So I sort of wanted to see, you know, let the reader see the process that mm-hmm. I went through to get the
0: story. That's a that's a clever way to do it. Before we get any further for our listeners, we gave clues as to what the book's about. But why don't, don't you just up front, you'll let us know how much you want to give away <laughs> by summarizing exactly. the book.
2: Um, Dr. Martin Cooney ran incubator sideshows where people could come and pay a quarter to look at live premature infants in incubators and he was in places like Coney Island in Atlantic City um he was right out on the boardwalk next to the what were then freak shows sword swallowers strippers he also was at numerous world's fairs including San Francisco's in 1915 um and what struck me about this was it was it was an extremely bizarre spectacle. He himself, um, was a better fiction writer about his own background than any of us are fiction writers here. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
2: but what was really strange was not just his story, but the culture that allowed this to happen. Uh, and so I went into this book trying to understand why was this happening for 40 years when, there's a proven technology that could save millions of lives, but it's not in American hospitals, and why is that?
0: And do you think part of it was because of the way he presented it, that people were having trouble taking it seriously? Despite, you know, during the book, you, you catalog the number of prominent uh, neonatal doctors who support him and, and come to his side, but yet it's still kind of a conorable huckster telling us, well, this is what works.
2: That was part of it. Part of it was that American hospitals at that time didn't have a lot of resources. You already had a high infant mortality rate, so they weren't that interested in these little preemies who are called weaklings weaklings in the literature. That was a scary, scary
1: aspect of it the narrative.
2: It was. So there was a eugenics movement in the United right. States, which was horrifying. And we, I think most of us understand that it targeted African Americans horrifically and Mexicans, and it also targeted infants with disabilities. And so although preemies weren't in necessarily in that category, there was an idea that these weaklings might never become productive members Mm -hmm. of society and therefore is it worth it to spend the resources to try to save them
0: one thing i think that's notable in the book is you recount just how easy it was to make it sound like an altruistic project you know to so these poor weak children don't have to suffer put them out of their misery like they're go
1: to the hands arms of jesus
2: yeah yeah Uh, There was a a Dr. Harry Hazelden in Chicago who was um, a prominent eugenicist and he was advocating this for children who had severe disabilities and he would invite the press to watch these children die rather than give them treatment that could save their lives. Um, and he created a movie called the black stork and it played in american theaters for years so this was the environment that martin cooney who here's this guy who's a showman Mm -hmm. is operating in. but he is um certainly getting rich and he didn't have a problem with getting rich he was happy to have that happen too but he was the person who was saving these premature children it's an incredible number it's a lot because it was 40 years, and he sort of franchised himself. So right, he had right. outposts in <laughs> Chicago and Denver right. and Minneapolis, and, uh, yeah, he, he got around.
1: I just, uh, you know, personal note, um, my child was a preemie, and the his, the, you know, animal hysteria you feel. And imagining these mothers in a moment of desperation taking a cab to Coney Island. With
0: their kid in a shoebox.
1: Yeah, like hoping to save their child's life. I, I just, it's, I mean, it's, it strikes me cold to my core and also it's just heartbreaking. But what, what an amazing thing that, you know, I guess with all of society telling you on one level or another, this is not a good idea. You're going to go next to the sword swallower anyway. Because there's mm-hmm. some <laughs> tiny bit of hope there. And
2: then it worked. It worked. It worked. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible. At one point, the, the oldest person I met was 95 years old. When mm-hmm. she was born, they said there was no possibility she could live a day.
0: Didn't she have a twin that didn't live?
2: She did have yeah. a twin. A lot of these babies were twins. Makes it was, a, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of the leading reasons for prematurity was multiple births. And so sometimes when I met some of the surviving babies, um... Many of them did have a twin that didn't survive.
0: So your background is mostly in fiction writing, and yeah. you have carved out a pretty good career in fiction writing. What I want to know is, yeah. this is as, as I'm reading, I'm so glad you included the chapters about you pursuing the story, because the whole time I was thinking, what possessed her <laughs> <laughs> to not write another book of short okay. stories? And instead to write a book where all of your sources are dead most I of it, except for, so still alive. it's yeah. ripe right
1: for fiction i could imagine that you yeah. yeah. getting the nugget of the story and running with it right so
0: so i know you explain a little bit in in the book how the germ of the idea came to you but for our listeners can you just tell us how you came about this
2: And then I'm going to keep going. I came about it in a really roundabout way. So uh, after my father passed away, I was looking through his papers and he had a tiny little typewritten autobiography that he had written probably as a school assignment when he was a teenager. And he mentioned going to the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago in 1933 and 34 and I just thought, what on earth was that? Like, I there's a very famous World's Fair in Chicago that mm-hmm. was the Ferris wheel in the White was City. Was it the 1890s? 1893. Mm-hmm. And that's the devil in the White City. But this was something I had never heard of. I had spent a lot of my childhood in Chicago. My parents both grew up there. No one mentioned this, but they must have both gone. Everybody went. I know.
1: World's fairs were huge. World's
2: fairs were enormous, and so this fair was the bottom of the depression, but it was as depression-proof as movies. This was people would spend whatever they had to go to this, and I was curious. I started looking at photographs, and this incubator exhibition on the midway was the most bizarre thing. Yeah. Um, so I thought I was going to write a novel set at the yes. Chicago World's Fair. That totally. makes sense. That was the <laughs> idea. I had tons of information. I went to Chicago. I walked around the fairgrounds. Um, I didn't even realize until later there's a wonderful novel about the Chicago World's Fair, that one called The Hatbox Baby by Carrie Brown. And and she has the incubator as central to it.
1: Yeah, I read um, that in um, your interview with Jane Chibiteri.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there there was already uh and I kept thinking of this incubator in my mind as sort of a metaphor of the you know, the century of progress and here's the inheritors of the century of progress baking in their little ovens.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: this novel couldn't get off the ground because the facts were more interesting to me than anything I could come up with. Yeah. So then I um dragged a friend of mine out to the Coney Island Museum one day cuz I just love that kind of thing. And I saw that not only was there an incubator show at Coney Island, but it was the same guy. And yeah. I thought, all right, that does it. I want to get to the bottom of this. And so was that a difficult decision? Raise. Well, I kind of thought, I really want to tell this story. And then I realized, it, this story is so strange. that The only way I could really tell the whole story would be as nonfiction. Stranger and, than fiction. Stranger than fiction. And... To my eternal gratitude, my agent did not that say, I do not next know question. how to write this, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Mm. She said, I, I called her up and I said, tell me if this is a stupid idea. And she said, no, I can sell that. And she said, you know, but you don't have any track record for this at all. You have to write a proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did pretty quickly.
0: And do you have any background in journalism?
2: Uh, well, like, even as a yeah, kid, yeah, I had a little more confidence in this than I should have. I went to journalism school for two years at the okay. Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. That's a, background in journalism. a big deal. Yeah. That was a big deal. Except yeah. I bailed out after two years, and I um, instead got a degree in semiotics, which is completely, oh, and utterly so useless. 80s. Was this the 80s? It was the end of the 70s. End of the this, 70s, okay, same time. Yeah, like the most useless college major that you could probably have interesting fun absorbing but not with many practical applications i was a magazine editor for a long time so i had done um profiles but you know a magazine profile
0: because i thought you were a fiction editor
2: I was a fiction editor for many, many years, and mm. I also was an articles mm. editor. As, as magazine fiction sort of dried up, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, I got into editing articles. So I did see what uh, magazines' fact-checking standards are, which are actually stricter than most oh, book fact-checking so standards. You can't strict, yeah. say anything unless you can prove it twice. Right. So I did have that in mind.
0: But as far as the task... Um,
2: <laughs> I was clueless. I, If I had known what I was getting into, I yeah. probably would never have done this.
0: Well, and I think you do a good job in those those chapters about yourself of showing how it just sort of unfolded. It, it was clear you didn't come into it with an idea of how much it would take and what it would take. It's just every door led you to another door.
2: Yeah, it did. And I, so I myself bought Martin Cooney's very well-constructed fabrication of who he was when I had started this. Right. Course, I thought yeah. that was so special strange it must be true maybe Um, and when it started to fall apart and I realized no um, none of this story is the truth Mm -hmm. you know I doubted myself at first I kept Mm -hmm. looking and looking Um, I was incredibly lucky to find Dr. Lawrence Gartner who was a leading neonatologist and he now lives in Southern California and he had a, a lot of his research about this that he hadn't published which he shared with me and So when I would find something, I he was very helpful. I would sometimes parse it with him as to, you know, do you think he really was a doctor, you know? And Uh, right, um, it's very. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler here to say he wasn't. It's really hard to prove a negative, so it was just sort of overwhelming circumstantial evidence. And does it matter? Right, but he was. it doesn't matter. He saved all these lives. I
1: think it makes him more interesting. Me too. I find it... Yeah. I find think it. He, yeah. it, I find it some, also there is like this the century of progress. Like what right. could be more American optimism? Exactly. Yeah. Like He's an American
0: yeah. archetype. I'm just going to
2: do it myself. But I did feel like um, he is sometimes viewed as having been simply self-serving. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, if, you, if he really did have all the medical credentials that he claimed to have and then decided, well... I think what I'll do is run a sideshow on Coney Island for 40 years. (laughs) That does sound (laughs) self-serving. You know, so for me, the fact that the credentials were fabricated makes me like him more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, He didn't have another recourse. Right. And he did a lot of good in the world.
0: He did. I I kind of felt like it was a Don Draper, Dick Whitman thing when I finally found out. Was he in danger of being arrested?
2: No, well, here's the thing. He was a very smart guy, and he never did anything that was illegal. So in terms of the health department, he would hire these assistants, who some of them that ink was barely dry on their medical license. They were actually, he got better doctors as time went on. But he was um, supremely oblique about himself, and he would just say to his assistant, oh, um, could you fill out this paperwork for the health department, please? Or could you examine this child? Or, you know, on a sad occasion, if a death certificate had to be signed, you know, could you handle that for me, please? So Mm -hmm. he wasn't really even examining the children himself. He was really just kind of the front person, and he had a doctor there. It really was the nurses who were doing the heavy lifting. Per usual, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So what's it like after being a fiction writer for so long to have a character like this living in your head that you can't really control the way you control a fictional character?
2: Yeah, it was intense and sometimes exasperating where I just felt like, oh, come on. Like, I mean, you know. um, For sure. At least he's dead. Yeah, good. he um, also, the closest living relative I could find was his grandniece who... -hmm. um, he brought over from Nazi Germany uh, her parents when she was a baby. So she didn't even have the full background. She knew some things. um, But there wasn't... Um, There weren't grandchildren. Thank goodness there wasn't an estate that I had to deal with. Absolutely. Um, Speaking from
1: experience, what a nightmare.
2: Yeah, I have a friend who wrote a literary biography, and it was a nightmare because the estate was making things really difficult. On the other hand, he left almost nothing in writing.
1: Right, which is the temptation to make it fiction, right? Um, That you could just jump off. But I love that you didn't because... What makes it so thrilling is knowing it's all
2: true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Talk about some of the dead ends that you got to and how you got around those.
2: Oh, well, the the one thing I really wanted to find was this 95-year-old woman insisted mm-hmm. that he had a book that she saw of his records where he listed all of his patients. And um, and I saw that mentioned in other places, and I really, really wanted to get that book. And I I think somebody just threw it out after he died, honestly. It would make so
1: much sense.
2: Um, th- so that I missed. I, so I think um, I, I spent a good six months trying to get to the bottom of what name was he born with. Mm-hmm. Cooney, I knew was a fake name. If you go on Ancestry, there's... Three people named Cooney: him, his wife, and his daughter. Really, wow. with that, so interesting yeah, who could how have been? Is. Cooney is an Irish name, but it's not spelled out. Yeah, C O O anymore. And sometimes, yeah. also in his writing, yeah. it, uh, the little pieces of things he signed, it had an, an accent, aigu that makes no sense in any <laughs> language at all. He was like, "What was that?" So oh, I felt like <laughs> that,
1: that was the heavy <laughs> metal right. version.
2: Um, yeah. You know what? I couldn't get to the bottom of even like where's his immigration, where's his naturalization. I don't know what name he had. Yeah. And I finally, if someone more experienced would have known earlier, go to the surrogate court and dig out the will of anybody who's related to him who has one. And so that was the day I found that his daughter had a will that went through probate. And in that will, under all the, you know, legalese and triplicate was this slip of paper that was his name change from 1903 in New York State Supreme Court. And it gave me chills because I realized there wasn't any legal or financial reason that needed to be in there. She wanted somebody to find it.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh,
0: And how did you figure out to go to that court to find it?
2: um somebody at the New York Public Library told me to oh it. a librarian <laughs> a librarian I love it. a librarian yes nurses and librarians are heroes of yes. this story 100% and so yeah. many stories yeah
1: um, but yep. yeah
2: i was i had an allen scholarship at the new york public library for a year and um there were some critical things that i found in the archives at the new york public library but it was also people telling right. me where to look. How and you, asking the right questions. Yeah. It. yeah. How
0: do you like that experience of being in the archives?
2: That was interesting. I had never done archival research like that before. Um it, you know, it's a mixed thing because some days you're just spending all day and you find nothing,
1: mm-hmm. you know. Right.
2: Um, everybody kept telling me to hire a researcher, which I couldn't afford, honestly, or I would have. But I was kind of glad I didn't because I would just see something adjacent that was really interesting and gave it some color. Absolutely. I was doing it. So I probably spent my... You know, I, I accidentally went to the wrong library <laughs> and then I found something interesting there. So I was trying to really get a sense of what else was going on at that time. So
1: when you have, it's the Allen Fellowship? It's, it was just a scholarship. a scholarship. There's no money. They just give you space. But space, support. that's kind of my yeah. question, is are you able to look at the stacks or is it still the same way where you have to request a book by book? Because one of the things that's so fantastic about doing research with open stacks is that you have that adjacent, you know, synchronicity yeah. of seeing and something.
0: Full disclosure to you, Don. Bridget is writing a historic book
1: biography oh. um yeah and, uh, and i've been doing a lot of research about world's fairs so, yeah, but uh, yeah. not to this depth it's because it's much a much bigger uh time span yeah um but i uh, when i lived in new york and was a graduate student i had grown up in the west where i had never been to a library that had that system and i found it really almost overwhelming to have to kind of know what question to ask
2: Together. Yeah, it. it was not open stacks, but um, that program. What was nice is that because there's a there's a scholar room, you can have the material delivered to you, and then you can keep it there on your shelf. That's and really you great. Can yeah, read it when you want to. Yeah. And then I had another um, designation that allowed me to take home non circulating books. What? Yeah, that's huge. that was huge. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm like all tingly.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that it all begins at the library, though.
1: I know it's really. It good. seems
0: like now because we have these little laptopy things, we right. skip right over like the library. Like you would never
2: have found that
1: name change on the computer,
2: right? There's a lot of things, and and again, I was sort of naive about that because we think that we can get everything with a couple. It's pretty amazing the what you can mm-hmm. find. It is amazing what yeah. you can find,
0: but it yep. could make you lazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember um, I did research in the late '80s on these 18th century French artists, and it took me probably six months just to acquire like, to create a bibliography of what yeah. I needed and I can find every single one of those things online now
2: yeah that That's I mean it was I am- well, uh, mean um, Google Books which um uh, yeah. mm. because you can find something that was published in a magazine that went out of business exactly. in 1898 exactly in Google Books. it's huge and for that to, was huge. to track
1: down those things yeah took me a year yeah and, I was able to recreate the
2: entire thing in probably three days. Well, this is why I felt like... So there was a group of leading neonatologists in the late 20th century who were interested in studying this, and they called themselves the Cooney Buffs. It was kind of a hobby. They were trying to get to the bottom of it. And so it, it would tra- you know somebody would travel to a city where Cooney was, and they'd write a report to now, the see, There's a novel in this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, Maybe. they were... Um, and I felt like it really couldn't have been done. Like, the reason I got the story is because the Internet exists. But at the same time, I wouldn't have had the kind of story I had if right. they had tape recorded on cassette tapes, interviews with people who are no yeah. longer living. Oh, so so I would good. never have had access to that. So I really felt like this was another reason I wanted to pull back the curtain on the process because I really wanted to make it clear that... It wasn't really just my research. There's, and I would think with any historical project, there's so many people who yeah. contributed to what we can know.
0: How? How? When did you start the process? How long have you been working on this?
2: Well, so I first started with the Chicago World's Fair in 2007. I started collecting things about okay. that. That was my first research trip to Chicago.
0: <laughs> now I know there was when I did my first googling of this. Uh, a few things that came up were articles about cooney that had been published in 2016 are you somehow responsible for those happening Yes,
2: i am um, so what happened is an npr reporter called me and, and i think it was probably early 2016 yeah, there was
0: npr one in smithsonian
2: they were um oh how much can i get into with Ooh.
0: that
2: okay so we do
0: have millions of listeners. So,
2: mm, so <laughs> <laughs> um, so NPR called, and they wanted to know if I had met any of the babies who actually remembered meeting Dr. Cooney, and I had. Mm-hmm. And I was writing this book, but I also thought, let's just not be a pig. This woman right. is 95 mm-hmm. years old, yeah, and right, right. I, um, so she did a StoryCorps story with them. That was the most popular StoryCorps story they'd ever had. And, in fact, I went through the 700 um, responses on Facebook and found a couple more people. Um, including one who's in the San Francisco chapter of this book. Um, and from there, there was a flurry of little articles about him. Um, and then there was the Smithsonian article. Um, this woman actually found these babies because of my research. They knew Mm -hmm. each other. I had brought them together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: it's, uh, it's such a hard thing, right? Like you've been working on this for years and years and years and someone kind of scoops it. Yeah. But does it matter now that the book is out, do you think? Like, did it maybe just pique interest in the I story? I don't
2: know. <laughs> yeah, you don't know yet. <laughs> how, how, I don't know. And
0: was there any yeah. um, question of them giving you a little nod in the articles? Because they don't.
2: No, 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 no.
0: In fact, I read them and thought, oh, this must be what inspired her. But yeah. then, there's no way she did all this research in a year.
2: No. Oh, my God, no, um, yeah. Well, um... Yeah, I mean, some of it. I think she she briefly also talked to Dr. Gartner. She was well aware that I was writing this book, and she slapped up a little ebook on Amazon that she's oh, promoting now. Oh no, no, no! That's yes.
0: watered yeah, down that's, the Kumi the Kumi market. Okay. Yeah, that is not okay. But let's move on to more pleasant things then.
1: Yes, shall we? Rates. Do you want
0: to keep going? Yes. Okay. No, no. You know what no, I noticed, no, no. I noticed uh, reading the book was as you read the book. So many themes emerge that are sort of central to American life. You know, like the, we see, you know, the eugenics theme, the theme of near and dear to my heart, Jewish immigration. Yeah. And how a lot of Jews hid themselves. Yeah. Hiding in plain sight. Um, I wrote some other ones down, but I don't see them now. But I'm wondering as if as you were writing, were you conscious of these themes being there or did they just emerge?
2: Um, One of the first people I talked to was a medical ethicist, and he really was the person who said to me, you know what, take a look at um, this as a cultural history. Mm -hmm. So take a look at what else is going on on the Midway at that time. You know, so there was some of that I had an idea of that cultural history where you saw what was going on with, like, premature babies were on display but also so-called freaks right the
0: girl with the extra legs and the extra arm and and,
2: you had indigenous people who were being displayed as savages uh and you had i mean in 1904 there was an entire native
1: village so people could just watch yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah um you know, so I had this idea of creating it as a kind of cultural history, and then world's fairs lend themselves to that yeah, so much yeah. as well, because the President would always go to the world's Fair, you know, and then so then, and I did see, you know, yeah, there was this the you know, he was part of this wave of Jewish immigration. um I think there's two pages about his hometown which i can't tell you how long i spent trying to find out like
0: (laughs) you definitely mentioned where was this hometown you know
2: what was it and what was his childhood like and Mm -hmm. again you know he managed to conveniently grow up in a place where there's just almost no remaining records that would have helped me understand but i mean
1: the combination of it being almost the mid-30s um Jewish immigration and eugenics is very chilling.
0: Right.
2: Like, and to have this moment come together in American history. And yeah. it's all
0: fun and games till you realize he better get that niece out of Berlin. Right.
2: Mm, right. Yeah, he was trying to get people out of there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he succeeded with some of them and not others. Right. It was very hard in this country. And what uh, the, uh, what I really wasn't expecting to find was a lot of research just showing how um, strongly American eugenics influenced the Nazis. Absolutely. They were inspired by Absolutely. it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because you could see, you know, the, there was the argument that before incubators, like, well, these kids are goners, you know, and if you save them, they're just going to be a mess anyway. So don't bother. Don't. Yeah. And, and there was, here's people texting me, um, and, what comes through in the book too is this idea of a little suspicion of technology. You're like, why are you messing with God's work? You know, this right. is the way it's supposed to be. And to see how it snowballs into, well, if we're getting rid of the weak and infirm, how about the uh, about the blacks and the Jews too? You know, they're not exactly what we want. So let's just get rid of everybody until we hear just Aryan beings.
1: Yeah, I mean that was a big that was a big part of American cultural life, it really was. Well, it was
2: the underside of genetics, which became, Mm -hmm. you know, was introduced in the late 1800s. And then when you think of genetics, then you start, you know. I mean, it comes out of a kind of scientific positivism, right? Can do.
0: Right, right. We can get rid of these bad things, but who decides what the bad things are?
1: Right, right. I mean, it is very chilling, and it is this pivotal moment, both in American history and world history. And what's beautiful about your book is how it's captured in totally in three dimensions, at least for me as a reader, um, because it's easy to look back and be just scoff at how idiotic people are, right? <laughs> well, and and,
0: and with subtlety too, what's, what's the decision that you made mm. to balance out uh, a sidebar on eugenics with the doctor's story?
2: Well, I felt like, you know, it's called The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, and I felt like he's a strange case, but the culture is a stranger case. And I, when I was reading the medical histories on the history of the incubator and the history of neonatology, I didn't see anything about eugenics. Mm -hmm. I just sort of realized that, oh, this thing is happening concurrently.
0: Was that through studying the world's fairs and and the sideshows?
2: Um, Yeah. And I did see a little bit, like the first hint I got of it was there was a letter in a medical journal in 1900 when he was at the Buffalo World's Fair almost all the press about the incubator was positive and there was this one letter saying well this is a really very sentimental thing a stock Mm -hmm. breeder would know to breed only the best and to not Mm -hmm. breed these weaklings who will perpetuate their kind and not you know, save people who are tubercular because they'll also perpetuate their kind and so I started to see these threads keep creeping in and then I did find A wonderful book um, called Every Child a Lion by Alyssa Klaus. And she was talking about these better baby contests that were going on at the same time. Explain those a little bit for listeners. Uh, um, So... It started out maybe as a positive idea. It was a physician and her friend who had this idea that, you know, how could we help Americans raise better babies? It was all well, this self improvement no. and some of it was positive. It was child care. It was prenatal and postnatal care. But they decided that they would have contests at state fairs the same way you would have a contest for a hog or a heifer or something. You know, women would be motivated to raise better children if they could maybe win a prize at a contest. (laughs) This idea spread throughout the country so that within three years, 45 out of 48 states that were then in the Union had these contests mm-hmm. where pediatricians would come and they would judge the children based on physical attributes. And it became more chilling as the physical attributes also had to do with, like, the shape of the eyes, the shape of the nose, the way the jaw looked. And you start to realize, so the perfect child is essentially Aryan by the way they were judging them. Um and they would give prizes to the winning children. But, I mean, this thing went on for years, and some of it you could say, well, the children got a physical exam, but it was a eugenic contest that was going yeah. on. Yeah,
0: and we, we're winners. We like winners.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we do like winners. Wow, it is, it is <laughs> sobering. You know, and at the same time, here's Cooney out there with his incubators, and he's viewed as like a freak show with, mm-hmm. you know— as if you were looking at a two-headed calf or something like that.
1: I mean, that is something I often think about in history, sort of like where good and evil comes from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's very hard to parse what the source of something is. Like something like a carny sideshow is of great benefit to humanity. Mm-hmm. Something that started out to raise healthier children has a really dark side. Um, I don't know. It's it's
2: interesting.
0: And, and didn't the, the Better Baby contests outdraw the incubators as a sideshow? Oh, show. yeah.
2: Well, they had better baby contests Were a national movement, they were everywhere. Well, they I mean, were hundreds, parent. hundreds yeah. of pediatricians um, participating in this. Some of them feeling uncomfortable with the setting, mm-hmm. um, but some of them were really, you know, there was one... Um, uh, she was an obstetrician, I think, or a pediatrician. On, uh, you know, on the record is saying you know, her hope for these contests is they'll speed the day when we have the scientific elimination of the unfit. That nice. I- that includes Sounds you and me with these glasses. Oh, for by sure. Right? I don't like the Nazis. Yeah. So, oh, more than kind of, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the underpinning, <laughs> right? Um, but I also feel like, for me, this story resonated for now because we still make really hard tech. The hard Absolutely. decisions about technology. Mm-hmm. You know, who gets to live? If you don't have health insurance, there's right. not a Dr. Cooney you can call up who will treat your child free of charge. And
0: I, I think you know. it is notable that it, it is revealed that he wasn't charging people.
2: He didn't charge the patients. Now, if mm-hmm. you wanted to give him a donation, he would take it. Mm. Um that's, that just ain't you know, smart, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, some of these parents were really, really wealthy. Apparently, like the owners of the biggest hotel in Atlantic City sent their child there. The Isn't that amazing, editor amazing, amazing. of the, um, the Chicago Tribune at one point, because you couldn't buy better care.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but it seems like in the book, you mention a lot of them didn't want to talk about it. Later.
2: Oh, I'm sure not. The parents didn't want to. So, this was what was interesting. The parents, and you can imagine how horrifying it Mm -hmm. is for a parent. If we say you can save your child if it's in a sideshow and people are going to pay admission to look at your child on display. Um, Uh, so yeah, the parents wouldn't talk about it.
0: And generally the parents didn't get to see them, right? Or they'd go once a day? No,
2: the parents could come as often as they want. Some of them came every day to like the fathers would drop off the breast milk Mm -hmm. or the mothers would come. He was, he really wanted all the child, children to, um, be breastfed and he had wet nurses for those who didn't have parents who could do that for them. So they did get to see their children. Um, but the 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 surviving babies themselves, the ones I met—about eight of them—didn't have any ambivalence at all. They just, as far as they were concerned, he saved their lives. There was nothing else to discuss. And
0: the one woman that you missed by a week, I think it was, who had left her memoir. Yeah, she was song and dance the whole way. Right, (laughs) it was part of her being.
2: I think them were though i think you know they felt like oh it's kind of cool people paid admission to see me the one who i met when she was 95 her family said when she had her 90th birthday party they charged everybody a quarter to get in the door <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you had it you eventually had a reunion for them
2: i did yeah
0: tell so. me how that happened and, and what and, and the sort of relationships you had with the babies well who are now old women women all of them women
2: All of them women, there was one man who didn't want to talk to me. And I think Mm -hmm. it was because his wife just passed away. It wasn't the subject matter. He just wasn't wasn't there. Um, So everybody I interviewed, first of all, they were all very curious about this mysterious man. Who was he really? Because nobody had much information. But they all, almost the first question they wanted to know was, have you found anyone else? I've never met another one who was in that incubator. And a lot of them had tried in various ways. And so I realized that I was going to need to um, bring them together. And one of them was coming from California in 2015. And I thought, all right, this is just the moment to do it. We arranged it um they were you know not everybody could come but there was a group of them who got together and it was the most wonderful thing you know they'd always wanted to meet somebody else in that odd situation and i'm still in touch with them they've stayed mm-hmm. in touch they're excited about the books uh they're they're coming to the events they're i love it isn't you know, it
1: so cool that you have now entered the stream of the real history hmm Right? Well, yeah. kind of. Oh, I, I think know. by I bringing just,
2: them together? I, by... Yeah, they... Absolutely. Um, I really, like I say it was really fun to bring them together. And since the book came out, I've heard from more people.
0: Oh, you have? Years. More yes. babies?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, well, there's... It's the children now. One, her mother mm. is in memory care. Um, and some of them are the children. One man said to me, you know, my mother always used to say she was born weighing two pounds and she was in a sideshow and no one would believe her. <laughs> I said, well... Yeah, that was true.
0: <laughs> That's a good segue to a question I've been thinking about, and that is, did you feel a responsibility to tell this story?
2: Yes, I did. And that I think these women were one of the things that kept me going. It got really hard. Mm. Um, yeah. There were many drafts, and then right when I book was finally approved and ready to go my editor was fired like three weeks later the entire imprint that was blue rider folded so it moved over to Dutton and a new editor even though the book still says blue rider there really isn't blue rider anymore Mm -hmm. it's you know it was produced through Dutton um and so I had to revise it all over again oh my Um, god was that just devastating at the time, it was. Although I have to say, the new editor made it a lot better. That's so so good I am to hear. very, very grateful. Did you?
0: I mean, did you basically have to resell it to the new editor?
1: Because um, you hear about them falling, like books just not being a- mm-hmm.
2: reacquired. Then I was terrified of yeah, that because, of course. course, you know they say like, "Oh, don't worry, everybody's book right. that's in the pipeline mm-hmm. is." And that's like not when you get true. a new boss and they say no one's getting laid off. Yeah, anyway. exactly. Right. So um, not right. True. Well, so, this wasn't yeah. your first
0: rodeo, too.
2: No, and they did cancel some books, so I was just like, oh, you know. Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> Can I ask you, um, you said four drafts, right?
1: Yeah. And do you, was were, were, say, two or three of the drafts baked into the process in your mind in the beginning? Like, I'm going to throw down the fact draft, and then I'm going to go back in? Or did you feel like what you showed your agent was, this is fairly solid.
2: I think I have this. I felt... By the third draft, I was just starting to lose my bearings. I wasn't really sure. All bad, you know. Yeah. Um, and then there really was a fifth one too, because by the fourth one, it was like playing a game of telephone. I didn't go back to all the original source material while I was revising, mm. so I had to go back and refact check absolutely everything at imagine. the end. Imagine. So that meant imagine. that was number five.
0: And while you were working on this book, were you also writing fiction? No. You stopped.
2: No, this was it. It I was working. I work as a freelance editor. Mm -hmm. So I was editing fiction and I was editing other books while I was doing this. What was the
0: time breakdown? How much time in a day did you have to spend on, I guess, money making pursuits versus this book?
2: I don't think there was ever any kind of structured schedule. It was sort of catch as catch can. Catch as catch can, yeah. Hmm. I am so impressed, I have to say.
0: And you're I mean, thinking in the back of your mind, this story needs to be told.
2: I felt like that. I also, so, oh, yeah, to get back to what you were saying, you know, there were times where I felt like I, I'm i just never going to get this done. It's I not going to work. I'm going to have to give them back their money. Um, but I did feel like I, I felt a commitment to especially the babies. Mm -hmm. I felt like, well, first of all, also Lawrence Gartner, who had entrusted me with his research, and these real women who entrusted me with their life stories. And I just felt like, you know what? I have to get this done.
0: So you were channeling Cooney, in a way, with your commitment to the babies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I still find him mysterious after all this time.
1: Do you have, I mean, maybe you always had respect for someone like Eric Larson, but uh, 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 like when I read those books, I just go,
2: but how yeah, <laughs> how? yeah, although I had my moments of like looking at the devil in the white city yeah. longingly like, thinking like straightforward the, story the absolute genius yeah. of that book was the way he entwined those two yeah. stories yeah. that the, the serial killer and how the fair um was put together, but I also felt like there was probably uh, there was You're too much material serial it serial would have been the opposite at yeah. Henry. What? of a serial killer. How to be a Oh, that's,
1: your, that's your Siri. Life and death of a serial killer. That's your <laughs> that's <her> Siri. That's your Siri.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Siri has <laughs> joined uh, the podcast. So,
1: so, Siri, go away. So Don um, said <laughs> serial
2: killer
0: and, and that Siri.
2: triggered Siri, which Siri. is disturbing. I know, and my volume is off on my phone. Is just like to, a, it's just like
0: It's a, an excellent it's reminder that, that disturbing technology
2: disturbing can sometimes go awry. They call that the ghost in the machine. That's
1: terrifying.
2: Really? No. What do what it's saying is there's tons of material about um, how that the, um, the first Chicago World's Fair came to Don't be. Don't say serial and killer again. The, the, um,
0: <laughs> the, the, someone who murders the a lot of people in a row. The
2: perpetrator. <laughs> the perp- um, he apparently left a memoir, which you would have to dig oh. with a huge grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. But at least there's some information. Yeah. And- But failing
0: that, how do you get the little tiny details? You know, when you recreate a scene that happened in 1903, you're including details. And I know sometimes you say, he must have thought, or, you know, she could have said. I had
2: to. I don't even tell you what my characters think in fiction. You know, people keep asking me what Mm. motivated him, and I feel like... I can, and I don't think motivations are ever very clear anyway. I think that's a very, thing.
1: yeah, it's very dangerous in nonfiction especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's, in real life for sure, it's a red herring.
2: It's it's very complicated, but I tried to get as much, you know, just looking at pictures and reading newspapers mm-hmm. and reading. And also, I think reading um, novels about that time period is really mm-hmm. helpful because you can just kind of yeah. get... Sink into the atmosphere. So yeah. it,
0: mm-hmm. in the end, what percentage of your research was actual interviews with people versus digging through archives?
2: Mm, probably more digging through archives. I would assume because there's people. not
0: many people around. Yeah, it
2: was more digging through archives. and um, I'm very inspired. <laughs> I really am.
0: <laughs> that's one of the reasons we had you here, to get Bridget
1: inspired. Uh, yeah, that's important. Uh, so,
2: uh, Yeah, I want to know more about your book.
1: We can talk talk about it at lunch. Yeah, Don's staying for lunch. Although I have been, um, and I may have said this on air, I have been researching the 1893 World's Fair and 1904, and so it was so fun to then have this picture of the 1933 World's Fair, which I did not know about at all, and revisiting Chicago, and just seeing how much comes together in a World's Fair. It's actually a fantastic locus for so many stories.
2: It really is, you know... Jane Chabatari was asking me about this. It mm-hmm. sort of brings out people's best and worst impulses. A hundred percent. And um, it's—I found myself just wishing I could do- go to that fair for yeah, one day. Absolutely. That you know, it's remarkable that millions of dollars are put spent putting together these temporary structures that all get torn down mm. when it's over.
0: It's remarkable to me that they don't make money. I was surprised. I forget which one. They don't
2: make money. The only one that did, the Chicago, that Chicago World's Fair in the Depression made a little money by running through a second summer. But especially the famous New York World's Fair, 3940, was a financial disaster for almost everybody. Robert Moses achieved his aim, which was to get that former garbage dump cleaned up.
1: Which is brilliant (laughs) and fantastic.
0: And I could talk about Robert Moses all day, so Speaking I'm not going to. Speaking of World's
1: Fair, though, I just want to say that I remember going to the World's Fair in Spokane, Washington, mm, in yeah. the sure. 70s. Was it 76 or 77? Um, and the best thing of the World's Fair was this sculpture of a goat that ate garbage. I just want to say that. Okay. Mm. Okay.
0: Uh, I learned a ton from this book, not to forget. Uh, I love the part about uh, McKinley.
2: Oh yeah! Oh right, yeah.
0: And <laughs> yeah. as as a local, I loved learning that Cooney's brother founded the Dipsy Run.
2: Yes, accidentally, How crazy. accidentally. So his brother was really the wild child. Mm-hmm. A little bit older, came to New York first. Um, you know, started with that name spelled. It was spelled like Coney. Coney Island, Island yeah. But Coney Island. Um, was that's Dutch for rabbit and people back then sometimes pronounced that Cooney. Hmm. Like you like yeah, Roosevelt right. and Roosevelt yeah. Right. Um so the brother came up with the name first, but apparently his brother um maybe had a little bit to drink and um, As one does. <laughs> challenged a friend to raise him up the mountain the ocean. and <laughs> back to Gypsy Inn. <laughs> And that was that was it. He lost the race, but he, he it, started something. It sounds
0: like he became one of those sort of Marin rogue guys. Yeah. That's an archetype as well. We're running out of time here, so I do not want to let you out of this room without finding out. Is this a career path change, or are you going back to fiction? Oh, I
2: have no idea. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're just, I really don't know. Just I'm really just done with this book. I feel like, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But do you miss writing this did you miss writing fiction
2: um yeah I do miss writing fiction a little bit yeah yeah I just honestly don't know for me to commit to a book uh, as opposed to short stories Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. takes so much out of me I have to be completely obsessed with something and it takes a while for that to happen
0: and was the obsession with this story similar or different from the obsession with a story that just popped into your head
2: I think this was probably even more... I I also felt a responsibility to Cooney himself to try to Mm -hmm. get it straight and to tell it well. And, um, you know, sometimes I find myself wondering what he would think of this book, you know, and the fact that I kind of outed him as not a real doctor, but... I think I built a case for him too. Yeah.
0: It seems like he might say, more colors on the cover, more, more flash. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. He'd have things to say for sure. But I also felt like, you know, I have to make this book entertaining because that's mm. how he would have sold it.
1: I love the cover too. I love that it has this Kearney feel.
2: That's <laughs> Coney Island in 1903. That's really what it Fantastic. looked like, wow. which is just unbelievable if it's beautiful. You know, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was was uh, electric. So, Lights were a novelty yeah, at the time.
0: You really bring it to life, and it's so great. We can't really imagine what it was like, you know? The, the, no,
2: you can't. And I, that was part of it. It's like I realized this is like writing about a country you can't visit.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I hope I'm not giving away too much, but the scene of the lion running through the streets on fire is really yeah. <laughs> like, geez.
1: Yeah. Times you have changed, right? They say you can't make that shit up. No. <laughs> <laughs> isn't there isn't that a famous phrase the past is another country is that
2: Shakespeare there must know? be yes. yeah yeah it's true
0: very nice well, we are out of time so as a public service to everyone listening uh Don, why don't you tell us how they can buy the book how they can get a hold of you where you're gonna be
2: uh, okay um well uh I will be at Book passages. That's Tonight. Too, tonight. That's, too that's tonight. That's you guys, soon. it was amazing. It was amazing. All right, there you go. Um, all of my events are on my website, which is raffle.com and you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. And if you were connected to anybody in one of those incubators, please um, send me an email through my website. I would love to hear from you.
0: And that's uh, D A W N R A F F E L, not R A F F L E.
2: Correct. Correct. I just want
1: to say because I am bringing this book to my 95 year old father um, as a gift. Um, he grew up in the Midwest, and I'm just hoping for a story. I'm hoping he has one. <laughs> 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 I've no, I've no evidence. I'm just ex- every once in a while this happens that he, he might knows. have gone to that world. I think it's possible yeah. that he was there, and so I'm I'm excited to have him read it. Oh, let me know what he says. Yeah, okay. <gasps> thank you. BQ,
2: oh, what say you? you? Larry,
1: um, I would just like to say, yeah, you guys, you can find me at uh, BridgetQuinnAuthor.com or at BQuinTrust on Twitter or Instagram.
0: You can find me at that Larry Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. Ugh.
1: Oh,
0: boy. Uh, website for the other podcasts I do, of course, is IsItGoodForTheJews.com. As for us here at The Grotto Pod, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Grotto Pod. You can email you us. Do. And people do sometimes email us sure. at GrottoPod at gmail.com. Who helps us put this thing together?
1: Larry, we want to thank our producers, Beth Weingartner, Lee Kravitz, and Laurie Ann Doyle. That? And also Sugartown for the great tunes. Oh,
0: and our partners, the San Francisco Public Library and Babylon Salon.
1: Such a great reading coming up on September 8th.
0: That may be in the past when this goes live. Okay.
1: It was awesome, you guys. Sorry you missed it. Go to the next one.
0: <laughs> we were there. We were awesome. <laughs> uh, that's all I have to say. That's all Don has to say. Do you I, have anything else to say?
1: I just want to thank Don.
0: Okay. And I want oh, thank
1: to say, you. oh my gosh, it was so great talking to you and to everyone else. I just want to say to read read Don's book, write and just keep working.